Welcome to Community Vineyard Church Podcast, a community of believers who passionately worships the Lord Jesus Christ, declares His truth, and shares His life with a world in need. Now, for this week's message. We are going to continue our series in Luke. We're going to be titled My Message Today is It's Time for a Fresh Start, of course, because of New Year's being the first Sunday of the new year. But before that, I want to share a joke that is somewhat dry. It may take some thinking caps to get it. It's very brief. A Jewish man once owned two rabbits. And every so often, he would give them some cardboard to chew on. But one year on Passover, he decided to give them some matzah instead to chew on. The two rabbits try the matzah, and the first one says to the other one, does this cardboard taste a bit funny to you? And the other rabbit thinks for a minute and says, no. You have to be in the right mood for matzah, I think, (laughs) you know. With a Seder meal, it makes sense, you know. Well, we're about one week into the new year. How many of you guys have totally and miserably failed your New Year's resolutions? Yeah? How many times do you have to set New Year's resolutions and fail before you stop? (laughs) The truth is that I am not fond of New Year's resolutions for that very reason, but mainly because of the psychology behind them. If you really think about them, they're, they're actually designed for failure, right? And most of them, for whatever reason, have to do with like weight loss. I don't know why, because people, it's, it's, it's almost as if they wait all year round for Christmas and Thanksgiving, and then they just do whatever they want, all of their health restrictions and whatever, they just do whatever they want. And then they say, their, their excuse is, of course, that I'm going to turn it all around on New Year's, right? But inevitably, because the change actually isn't a change that they really want to make, it's, it ends up failing, right? And that is sort of the conundrum about change, is that unless it comes from a place of the heart, unless it's something that you really are committed to doing something you really want to do, it's not going to take hold. You may be able to make that change briefly for a short period of time. But if you want to be healthy, it has to come from a real desire in order for you to take necessary steps to make it long-lasting. Likewise, in the Christian faith, real change can't come from an outside source trying to impose it upon you. It must come from within. It must be a result of your heart actually changing. And this is the problem if you look at the Old Testament and the law. The, the reason that the law was not sufficient enough to bring about sanctification and purity was because it was something that was sort of out, 
outside of them that was imposed upon them, right? And initially, you know, some of the things that they would do in the law, the sacrifices and the purification rituals, they actually had meaning. They were very powerful. And they would result in a heart change. I mean, if you can imagine, it's so foreign to us. Think about what, what would take place in your heart if you had to raise an animal on your farm, on your property, day in and day out for six months or more. And then you had to sacrifice it because of something that you did. That would actually impress upon you maybe even a heart change. Like, it would cause you to reflect, right? But over time, people just got desensitized to that. And, and then they would pay somebody to actually do the sacrifice for them. And so there resulted in no real heart change. And this is one of the main reasons, if not the main reason, that, that Jesus came, is so that we would actually have access to the Holy Spirit so that it would result in a heart change, so that we would be able to be reconciled with God through this process. And you see that all throughout the New Testament. He's constantly turning things back to the heart. When somebody says, well, you should do this because of the law, and he says, well, what's the heart behind the matter? You should do this, and he says, well, what's, all of that's worthless if your heart isn't changed. So I want to tell you, if you're here today, and maybe you're struggling with change, maybe you're wanting to change something, but, but really it's not, it's, it's sort of an external thing that's being put on you. You want to change, but it's not really a heart change, right? Then I want you to pay attention to our message today in the Scriptures and just receive maybe what the Lord has for you. So let's pray. Lord, we, we love your Word. We love reading about Jesus. We love learning about the things that He said and the things that He did and And Lord, there's so much depth in it. There's so much for us that we can gain even in just a few small paragraphs, Lord. It is the only thing, your word is the only thing that is sufficient enough to bring about any sort of meaningful change. It's the only thing that will give us access to the Holy Spirit so that we can change our heart to reflect you, Lord. So we would ask that you would just impress upon us what it is that you want us to learn so that we leave here different than when we came in. In Jesus' name, amen. So we are going to be continuing in chapter 2 of Luke. I believe this finishes up the chapter. I might have said that last week, but this really does finish up the chapter. (laughs) Starting in verse 41, every year Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up to the festival according to the custom. After the festival was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. (laughs) How many of you guys have left your kids somewhere? And (laughs) see a few honest, humble parents raising their hands. There's a few things I want to unpack about this that I just find very interesting that give, give us some significance to this because this is, I want you to think about of all the events 
that Luke could have recorded. Remember, Luke wasn't around during this time. He wasn't a, an, eye, an eyewitness to Jesus going to the temple or anything like that, which means that his gospel is written using eyewitness accounts. These are, these are, he's probably, most people think that he interviewed Mary, Jesus' mother. Most people think that he interviewed other people who would have been around during the, during the time of these events. So why did Luke choose to write this specific story in there, right? It seems a little strange. How many of you guys have ever read this? And you're like, why is this the only story about Jesus, right? I've kind of wondered that, and, and, and it wasn't until I kind of got deeper into it, I began to learn the themes that Luke talks about all throughout his gospel. There's probably five or six main themes, and one of the themes is this sort of focus, this highlight, this emphasis on Passover, and of Jesus fulfilling the Passover, right? So it would make very, it would make perfect sense that this was something that was important that Luke wanted to highlight. So a few things that, that bring some context to this narrative. As an adult, all Jewish men and women were strongly encouraged to attend three main festivals in Jerusalem per year. They had the Passover, which took place, uh, you'll see the, uh, sort of the law and the rules and regulations related to this, if you want to find that in Leviticus chapter 23. Then there's the, the Pentecost, the festival of Pentecost, which is also in Leviticus 23. And then the festival of the tabernacles, which is surprising, in Leviticus 23. But for many, this was impossible, especially because if you were poor, um, it, it's, it's kind of a big deal to travel to Jerusalem for all these festivals. Like, if you don't live near Jerusalem, if you're not, like, one of the neighboring villages, it's a big deal to pack up your whole family and travel for days. So, like, even for an example, where, where Joseph and Mary were traveling to the, fe- traveling to Jerusalem for the Feast of Passover, would have been probably between four and six days, depending on how slowly they traveled. And because it was a big deal, it was a big festival, you would travel with friends and family, and so you'd probably maybe even want to go slow. And it would be sort of an enjoyable trip, right? But it would also be very costly, because you had to bring all your food with you, or you had to buy food there, right? Some of you guys know what that's like trying to go on vacation. It's very costly, right? Now, we know from earlier passages in in chapter 2 uh, in chapter 1, that Jesus' family was not well-to-do, right? That Jesus was born in, in uh, you know, in uh, kind of a, you know, not exactly a high-class place, right? And it was usually, it was probably just Joseph and Mary were there. Now, we don't know exactly what their financial situation was at this point, but I'll say a few things. They were given gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Nobody knows how much gold they were given, you know, if you were going to go anoint the king that you've been waiting for, that you've been praying for, how much gold would you give him? You traveled for hundreds of miles. We're talking about the, the, the wise men, right, who came from the east, traveled hundreds of miles, probably took many months. How much gold would you present? Would you present a coin or would you present everything that you could? So think about that. They may have had enough gold to actually last them many years. And also, think about this. Your son is the son of God. He's training to be your apprentice in the carpentry business. How lucrative would your business become? Right? Jesus is your apprentice, and he's like, hey, Dad, why don't you just make it this way? Why don't you do it this way? And then, boom, they all sell out. We don't know. 
How many of you guys would like to have Jesus as your apprentice for whatever business you're in, right? I can guarantee you that it would end up being a profitable, lucrative, stable business for the family. So they were able to make it. And it's important that we really hone in on the first two words. Every year. They went every year. That actually signifies something very important. It's not just obeying the law. It's because they wanted to go. This is something they looked forward to doing. If you don't want to go, if you don't want to do these things, oftentimes people don't do them. But they wanted to go. They went every year without fail. It's important. And we're going to be talking a lot about Passover today, so we'll come back to that. Verse 44, thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for a day. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. After three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them, and asking them questions. Now, let's just address the obvious question. How in the world did, parent, how in the world did, did Jesus' parents not know that he was with them? I mean, for how many days? They're trapped. They went on for a whole day. They didn't know. I mean, we may forget about our kids here or there for a time, but a day. Well, it actually kind of makes sense if you understand the festival and what, what took place. First thing, there's a few things to, to consider. First of all, Jesus is 12 at this age. So he's just one year away from sort of being officially a man. So that makes sense that he actually would have the option to stay with the women or go with the men, right? And when the, when the crowds would leave Jerusalem following the Passover, they would be sort of segregated into uh, genders. It would be men are traveling with the men and women are traveling with the women because they would be in family groups, right? Traveling back to their hometowns, back to where they were. And so Jesus being a 12-year-old, if he was 13, he would have been expected to be with the men. But as a 12-year-old, he could have chosen. He was old enough to make his own decision, but you know, not, not so old enough that he was forced to go with the men. So it would make sense that maybe his parents didn't notice that he was, maybe they thought that he was with the other one for a day or so. So it's important to remember, like, he did not have neglectful parents, but it also doesn't mean that you can leave your 12-year-old at church and blame the other parent. Let's not do that. But it's so fascinating because what was Jesus doing in the temple? He was asking questions and listening to them. Do you guys think that Jesus didn't lack information or that he lacked information? Do you think that he was asking questions because he didn't know the answer? Like he's confused about something in the Scriptures? Please explain the Scriptures that are all about me. He's asking the rabbis. No, it's more likely that he's doing what he always did throughout the Scriptures. He goes into a place and he asks questions that pierce the heart of people. It's very likely that he was old enough to go into a place and ask questions to help people have their eyes opened to the Scriptures, which is why it was amazing to the people who were around him. So moving on to the next verse, everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. He's asking questions not because he needs information. Like, it wouldn't, have been, uh, uh, it wouldn't have amazed anybody if he's 
asking questions that other 12-year-olds were asking. It amazed people because he was asking questions that helped his audience and the rabbis to see the truth. That's what amazed people. And then they would ask questions, and he would give answers. That would be like totally mind-blowing, right, to some of these rabbis, if they were humble enough to receive it, of course. What's also interesting, it says, his parents were astonished. It, to me, it's, it, it's like if you went through everything that, was, that took place in chapters 1 and 2 of Luke as parents, you know, with the wise men, you know, all this stuff that happens, and, and Mary herself giving prophetic declarations about her son, Zechariah, all this stuff, right? You would think that they would remember that 12 years later. But for some reason, they're astonished. And I think that they're astonished because they were a little desensitized. Yeah, they went through all of that, but when Jesus was growing up with them, he was actually probably very ordinary. You know, there might have been hints here and there, but it's not like Jesus was at the dinner table, you know, like asking questions to his dad to help his dad, you know, open his eyes to the Scriptures. This, this was not a normal thing. If this was a normal thing that he was you know, giving, teaching his father at the dinner table every single night about the Scriptures and about Judaism, if that was a normal thing, how do you think his parents would have reacted? They would have gone in there, and they would have seen it happen, and they would have rolled their eyes and been like, he's doing it again. I mean, it's, it's kind of like comical. You think about like Jesus doing that at the dinner table, and then, and then like how annoying that would get after a while. As a parent… Your child's teaching you at the dinner table, I would find that to be very annoying. And they would go in and they would see him at the, at the, uh, <laughs> at the temple, and I, I just think it would be annoying. <laughs> Why were you searching for me, he asked. Didn't you know that I, I had to be in my father's house? By the way, uh, ma- many other translations will say, didn't you know that I had to be about my father's business? But they did not understand what he was saying to them. It's like they had this spiritual blindness. And that's a real thing, by the way, if you read the Scriptures, that the Holy Spirit will actually blind people intentionally. I don't, we don't know if that happened here. Uh, the text doesn't say. I'm not going to try to speculate one way or the other, but it does seem strange they did not understand what he was saying to them. Also, by the way, there's a few things that are important about this that are sort of like firsts and lasts that I'll, that I'll just point out before we move on. First, this is, the, this is the last time that Joseph, his dad, his like earthly dad, is mentioned in Jesus' life chronologically. He's not mentioned anymore in the texts. No one really knows what happened to him or how he died or what happened, um, but he's no longer mentioned in the text. Second, this is also the first time that it's recorded that Jesus spoke of God as his father to his earthly father, no less. And it's something that he set out in public. Remember, he's in the temple courts with people around him. Think about when he did this as an adult. Here he says, didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? He is speaking the truth about who he is. He's actually 
in a way, and this would have been very real to the Jewish people, he's in a way claiming to be God right here. Right here. This is why they killed him. This is why the Jewish religious leaders killed him. And he's saying it as a 12-year-old. Think of that. If they would have heard this, now maybe because he's 12, he's not the age of adulthood, maybe there just would have been a, a punishment or maybe even punished his family because of this. But this is a big deal. He's claiming to be God right here as a 12-year-old. Hmm. It's a stonable offense. It's what they killed him on the cross for. It's because he claimed to be God. The last, last couple of verses we're going to read before I talk a little bit about the Passover is 51, he went down to Nazareth, Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus grew in wisdom and, and stature and in favor with God and man. <clears throat> I, I want to say that he, you know, it's, it's important that we recognize that Jesus was not disobedient. You know, Luke makes sure to include that in there because it's, it's actually a very big deal to be disobedient to your parents. And if you just read this narrative without that line in there, it kind of makes it seem like Jesus was kind of like this rebel, right? And in many of the Gospels, he's actually shown to be sort of a rebel and a revolutionary, right? Especially to the, the, the eyes of the religious leaders. But it's very important that, that he wrote in here that he was obedient to them. Not only was he obedient to them all up until this point, but he remained obedient to them. It's, you know, we differentiate in the New Testament and the Old Testament between the laws that we have to sort of follow and the laws that maybe we're released from. And this is one of those things that we are not released from. Our children should obey us as parents. And as parent, as as sort of, you know, like my parents, I should obey my earthly parents as well. This is something that I think a lot of parents need to really hone in on and focus on. Is it's very important at a very young age to have your kids be obedient to you and respect you. This is for a lot of other parents who have kids who are disobedient. I don't have personal experience about that. I, I've read about that. I've seen it in places. Uh, it's not something I have personal experience with. So why is this narrative in here? Well, I already said it's, it's because Passover is important. It's a big deal. Now I'm going to explain what is Passover for those of us who, who may not know. It's a big deal. Why was it celebrated? Where did it even come from? Well, it's, it's a celebration of one of the most important events and supernatural displays of the Lord's power and, and love for His people in, in all of history. If you go back to the book of Exodus, it was, it was when the Lord revealed Himself to the people of Israel through Moses and the ten plagues that culminated with the ten plagues in the death of all the firstborn sons in Egypt and the command that the Israelites kill an unblemished lamb, the night before and put its blood, blood over the doorpost as a sign for the angel of death to pass over their homes. Right? 
So that, that makes sense. The name Passover makes sense given the narrative, right? This event and the events that preceded it and, and, and before and after it were formed into what was known as the most important Jewish holiday of the entire year. In fact, it's so important that Exodus 12, 14, tell, God tells Moses that this holiday is going to be celebrated in heaven for all of eternity. What? All of eternity? Like when we get to heaven, we're not going to be celebrating New Year's Eve, right? We're not going to be celebrating some of these things, but Passover? We're not going to be celebrating July 4th. I hate to break it to the, the patriots in here. But all of eternity, we're going to be celebrating Passover forever? This is the one holiday that's emphasized for all Jewish believers, but now as Christians as well. And we call it Good Friday, Right? What's so good about it? It ties in with the whole purpose of Jesus coming to begin with. Passover isn't just about celebrating the events of the Exodus. It's about celebrating the work of Christ Himself, His work on the cross, which is why it's going to be celebrated for all of eternity, because Christ's work on the cross, was it echoes throughout eternity. It exists outside of time. Christ's work on the cross is, the, is, is like the focal point, the turning point of life itself. It is how we define even our calendar, right? It is something that echoes throughout all of eternity. So when we step into eternity, that is going to be something that's going to be celebrated daily. We're going to celebrate the Passover. We're not going to have like a yearly calendar that we're going to know of in eternity, but we're always going to be celebrating the work of Christ on the cross, what He did for us to save us from sin. Now, there's many traditions that evolved over time as part of Passover celebration. Some of them are found in Leviticus. You can, you can see the details of what they're supposed to do. And then there would be regional traditions. There would be even family traditions. Um, and I, I specifically love, I wanted to mention, like, the Seder tradition is such a beautiful tradition. I, I remember when you guys did that for our church. Do you guys remember, how many of you guys remember when Bonnie and Braden blessed this church with the Seder meal? That was amazing, you guys. If you guys feel led to do that, you are released to do that. I just, I remember it so much. It was so vivid. It was such a powerful experience to just go through that together as a, as a biblical community. And I learned so much from it. But one of the other main things that, that all Passover celebrations had in common was the sacrifice of a Passover lamb. Now, this took place in, in two contexts. There was one that took place for the family, and there was one that took place for all of Israel. The one that took place for the individual family was done to commemorate the Passover lamb that was sacrificed, uh, you know, uh, in the book of Exodus, you know, the day before the 10th the plague was sort of carried out. And families would sacrifice a lamb, and it needed to be eaten all that night, and whatever was left over, it had to be burned as an offering. If you couldn't eat all of it in one night, then you would maybe band together with two or three families, and you'd sacrifice a lamb, and it would all be eaten. But then there was one that was specific for all of the community, for all of Israel, not just the people who were present in like the region of Jerusalem or Israel, but all the, the people of Israel. And this was a sin offering. Essentially, the priest would find a perfect, unblemished lamb without any defect, and they would lay hands on it on behalf of all of Israel. 
and they would impart all of the sins that had been committed from the nation in the previous year. And then they would file a very detailed description of how to kill it that would include not breaking its bones, what to do with the meat, all of that. It was very formalized. But this lamb would be what the Lord would place his righteous anger and wrath towards sin upon every single year. And the Israelites would be able to begin the new year fresh. The new year had just, usually in their calendar, is just a few weeks before this. And so they would have this ceremony where they would, they would put all of the sin on this lamb. And then the Lord would pour out his wrath and his anger on this lamb. And the entire Jewish people could start fresh. Every year they could do this. Some of us need a fresh start today. This is the ceremony that culminated in the last sacrifice, once and for all, in the perfect offering in the man of Jesus Christ. It was his offering on the, on the cross that the Lord used to place all of the sin, past, present, and future, of all mankind. This is why the cross stands outside of time. It's not like, you know, and we taught about this in Romans, you know, it's not like uh, only the sins that took place after the cross were placed on him. No. All of the sins for those who receive Christ, past, present, future, all of them were placed on Jesus, which is why the cross stands outside of time, which is why it echoes through eternity, which is why we celebrate it for all of eternity. This is why this story, by the way, this is important to understand. This is a central theme throughout Luke as we travel through Luke in 2024. This is why John the Baptist calls him the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of man. That's, that's next week. We're going to be talking about that when John the Baptist sees Jesus and calls him the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of mankind. That's what the Passover is. That's what it is to be sort of culminated in the Passover in the personhood of Jesus. And thankfully, no other sacrifice will ever be needed. We are able to come to the throne room of heaven. We're able to confess our sins. We're able to receive forgiveness. And we're able to claim our fresh start any time of the year. This is why I don't like New Year's resolutions, because it's like this one time of year. If you need a fresh start, you can claim it any time. You can claim it today. You can claim it tomorrow. If you mess up next week, you can claim a fresh start next week. See, it's, it's sort of a, a, a play on words today. You know, it's time for a fresh start, but you can claim that is your birthright as a Christian. You can claim the restorative grace of Jesus any time. Anytime you need it, our graces are renewed every morning if we need it. And He never loses His patience with us. <laughs> yeah, hallelujah. He never loses His patience with us. As Christians, if you have received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you have the right to come before your Father at any time, any point, no matter where you are, or what you're doing, and you have access to the Father through the power of the Holy Spirit, you can repent, you can commit yourself to doing His will, you can submit to His plan for your life, and here's the thing, He'll do the heavy lifting. He'll do the work. He will change your heart. I started off 
this message saying that the reason change doesn't occur is because you don't want change to occur. Humans, we don't want change to occur. We don't like change. If I'm trying, like I know that I should lose weight, or I know that I should, you know, involve myself in this ministry, or I know that I should pray for this person, if it doesn't flow out of your heart, you're not going to do it. And if you do do it, it's going to be sort of begrudgingly. It's not going to carry any power with it. The things that we want to change in our lives or you think that you should change, if you want to actually act on it, it begins with your heart. That's what Jesus came to say. That's all throughout all the Gospels. And let him do the work. That's the other beautiful thing, right? If I want my heart to change or I think that it should change in a certain area of my life and I'm struggling with this or I'm struggling with that, I get angry at, at, at you know my kids or whoever. If I want it to change, it begins with a prayer, like a, just a real genuine prayer. Lord, I'm struggling. I want my heart to change. Maybe you've lost love for somebody. You're angry at them. Sometimes, you know, years of hurtful stuff. That's, there's one person in my life that, that I, I just struggle with sometimes. And I pray, Lord, change my heart for this person. Change my heart for this person. There's nobody in this room, by the way. <laughs> I think it was me. Is it me? No. It's not you, Kara. (laughs) But the Lord has begun to move in my heart over the last few years because I say that prayer and I trust that He who's going to begin a work in me will will not just forget about me, that He will complete the work that He began in me, that He wants me to love people. He wants me to love that person. And even though I struggle with it, I want to be able to love that person. So it begins with a prayer. Lord, change my heart. Some of us need to say that today. Some of us need our hearts changed. Maybe it's for a person. Maybe it's for a job. Maybe it's for a sin. Fill in the blank. Maybe you just have an active sin in your life. And you know that it's wrong, and you repent of it genuinely, but you struggle with it. Just ask the Lord to begin to change your heart. And any time that temptation comes, says, Lord, change my heart. He'll do the work. That's what He promised us. That's the Holy Spirit's job, is to convict of sin and to change your heart, to get to a place because eventually, over time, Eventually, you'll not want to do that thing anymore. Eventually, you'll love that person because it'll, but it'll come from a place of like, I shouldn't, you know, it'll come from a place of your heart. It'll bubble up from your heart. It won't be this thing that I feel like I have to do. So I'm going to invite the worship team to come up. I, I know that, I know it's the first Sunday of the new year. And I know there's some things that people have been putting off. I know that there's some things that people have been sort of like hemming and hawing that they know that they should be committing to, or maybe they tried to commit to it and it's already failed. Okay? I know that. But you have access for a fresh start all year round. It doesn't need to be about New Year's. You know, if you're struggling with something in March, put this, go to our podcast and put this message on. You have access to a fresh start all year round. You don't need to wait for a certain day of the year or a month or anything like that. I'm going to wait for my birthday. I'm going to eat a bunch of cake and then I'm going to get healthy. No. Your birthday's in July. Get healthy now. 
Then you can eat a little cake in July. (laughs) Today as we begin to worship. Let me just say, one of the reasons, by the way, that we have worship at the end of the service, there's many reasons, but one of them is so that we can respond. If the Lord has spoken to you through this message, you know it. You know that there's something in your life that you're struggling with, whether it's a sin or finding love with, you know, for somebody or a boss or whatever it is. You, you know it already. It's been in the forefront of your mind for the last five minutes. One of the reasons that we have worship at the end is so that we can spend some time in prayer so that we can contemplate and we can think about it and we can actually respond to what the Holy Spirit has already been speaking to you. So don't let this time go by. Allow yourself some quiet time. Close your eyes. Don't worry about people running around waving their hands. I mean, that's great. Please, worship. Let yourself go. Celebrate the victories that we have in Christ. But if the Lord's been speaking to your heart, just take a few moments. Quiet yourself. Make a commitment. If He's calling you to do something, make a commitment. Or even for the first time, say that prayer. Lord, change my heart. And stick with it. And say, Lord, not only do I want you to change my heart, but I want you to remind me of this prayer every single time I struggle in this area. And then every single time it rears its head, every single time the enemy comes against you, say, no, the Lord is going to change my heart, and I have faith in that, and I'm going to stand firm in that work. And even if I do mess up, I can always repent and come right back into the throne room in an instant, and I can receive the victory. So don't let another, don't let another day go by without saying that prayer, Lord, change my heart. And receive. Maybe it takes time, but receive. And He's going to do the heavy lifting. Amen? Amen. Let's stand and worship the Lord together. Thank you for tuning in to Community Vineyard Podcast. If you enjoyed this week's message, click the share button and be sure to subscribe to our channel so that you'll be notified of our latest content. To learn more about Community Vineyard Church or how you can partner with us, please visit our website at www.communityvineyard.org. Until next time.